It's not hard to feel a little bit embarrassed to uh, preach on the subject of persecution when the one who is preaching it, plus those to whom he's preaching, know so very little about the subject of true persecution. Now, before some of you begin to object and before you begin to make a long list of all the different persecutions that you've suffered for the name and the sake of Jesus Christ, let me just suggest that being called names like Jesus Freak, Bible Thumper, and Goody Two-Shoes does not equate to the type of persecution that we see both in the beginning of the Acts and also throughout church history. Throughout in the book of Acts alone, we see that there were people who were being severely threatened, severely beaten, their freedoms were being taken away, they were being imprisoned, uh, and they were being put to some really horrific horrors in their death. Uh, the Bible tells us that some had been boiled in oil, some had been sawn in two, some had ultimately been sewn up in animal skins and fed to wild beasts. That's the type of persecution, in essence, that we see not only in the Bible, but we also see throughout her ch- church history, which even some today, not per se in America, but around the world, even this morning, are, are suffering to sometimes these same extents. Their lives are being taken. So for me to preach on this subject, it reminds me a little bit about when I was a youth pastor, and I was a single youth pastor with no children, and uh, which made it a little bit odd sometimes because I would preach to young people, but I was also preach and teach to adults, to parents. And so I would, what I would preach all the time is, hey, men, you need to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. Right, right, ladies? Great, great message. Um, also, hey, men, ladies, parents, you need to raise your children in the admonition of Christ. Now, I could preach that because of the calling on my life and because I was preaching from the word of God, but there was always this sense of strangeness, both for me and for those who I was teaching, because even though they would listen because it was the word of God, they couldn't help but to think this guy has no experience in the area in which he's instructed me on. And it was true. And so I feel that same sense of strangeness when we talk about being persecuted simply because you are a believer in Christ, simply because you profess faith in him, because I do have experience and every believer has some level of experience. It's just not as great as experience as we see in the text of Scripture and also around the world and throughout church history. But the good thing for you and the good thing for me is that when I'm preaching this morning, I'm not relying on the sufficiency of my experience. I'm relying on the sufficiency of the Word of God. Amen? And so the question is, why is it then that we talk about persecution? Why is it that we talk about it? If it's not very common amongst us in America, why would we talk about it? Why not something more relevant? Number one is because the Bible often talks about things you need to know, not necessarily things you want to know. You have greater needs than you know. Here's the second thing. Because the Bible speaks about it, we're going to speak on it. Number two, if you are, and this is what we're focusing on, the overarching idea today. If you are a believer in Christ and you desire to live a Christ-centered life, that is that it's all about him and you want to know him, and you want to make him known, then persecution is inevitable. You cannot escape it. You will be persecuted. And in this text, I believe it teaches us three reasons why persecution is inevitable. Three reasons why. First of all, it's inevitable because the word of God promises it. 
It promises it. This is the first we see of persecution in the book of Acts here in chapter 4. And it comes on the heels of a pretty incredible miracle in chapter 3 that we talked about last week. It's a, it was a man who had been born lame and now was over 40 years old. So he had never walked, which meant he couldn't work. And so he became a beggar for the rest of his life. And so every day his life, his job was to sit outside of the temple and begin to beg and to plead with people his case and say, would you just give me some money? And his hope was to get enough money during the day that he would be able to feed himself and to be able to sustain life until the next day and then basically do it all over again. So on this one particular day, he's standing near, he's standing the lame guy was standing near the temple, therefore um, he was sitting, lying, whatever, near the temple. There we go. And, uh, and, 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 and Peter and John walked by. You know the song, right? Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. You guys not know this song? You must not have grown up as charismatic. So uh, anyway, uh, man, man, man on the way. He says he stretched out his arm and he asked for some alms. And this is what Peter did say. Silver and gold have I none, but yet as I have, give I thee. And the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And he rise up and walk. He goes walking and leaping and praising God. Walking and leaping and praising God. That's not the Bible. That was a song. But that's what he, that's what he begins to do. And so he, he does this. And so he says, look, I don't have any money. I don't have any cash on me. But what I do have is the power of the Holy Spirit. And that I'm bestowing upon you. And he prays for the man and he's, and he's healed. Now remember, people all over, thousands of people would have known this man. They would have seen him. He was a fixed individual at the temple. They, they probably had given him money. Now they're seeing this man walking around, walking and leaping and praising God. Right? And so they're wondering what this is. And so they all begin to talk with Peter and John. But somebody else wants to teach with them, the religious leaders. And the Bible says, look at, look at this in verse 1. It says, <clears throat> excuse me. And so they came to, to talk with them, to be able to meet with them. And they were, they were speaking to, and as they were speaking to the crowd, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Now that came upon them doesn't mean they're showing up because they're going to throw a parade for them. It doesn't mean that they're showing up because they want to give them citizen award. They're coming upon them because they want to do them harm. They're coming upon them because they're going to persecute them because of what has ultimately just transpired. And here's what I want you to know, and it's not directly in the text, so I'm trying to be careful here, but this would have come to no surprise to the apostles at all. Why? Because persecution at the hands of the enemies of Christ was promised to them by Jesus Christ himself. In the book of John, chapter 15, verse 20, you're familiar with this passage, I'm sure. He says, remember the word, this is Jesus speaking, before his death, he takes his disciples aside and he says, remember the word that I said to you. Now, what's interesting is this means that he's repeating it at least a second time. That he had said this to his apostles at another time and now he's repeating it. He says, remember, I want you to remember this. Keep this in your mind. He says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. All right, And so now they're on the hindsight of Jesus' persecution and his death. They're remembering Jesus' teaching, and they're like, you know what? If they persecuted him, which they did, now we ourselves at some point are going to be persecuted, and this is when it begins to happen. So, and, and the only reason they're being persecuted is because they're followers of Jesus Christ. They're professing the name of Christ. They're sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this idea of persecution is not uncommon among Christians. In fact, it, it, it is very common. It is a part of the Christian life. And Paul was so familiar with it. We know that Paul uh, was, was, was literally persecuted constantly, right? 
He was constantly being stoned. He was, he, he was being beaten. He was being imprisoned. This was a part of his life, so much so that in the book of Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, he says these words. He says, I'm filling up. I'm filling up with what was lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body. That is the church. In other words, he was talking about the persecution. The pains that come from persecution for following Christ, he was literally filling up with it. He was suffering so much. But why is it? Well, he, he, he kind of explains it here in this text. Just track with me for a minute. He says that he was filling up with what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. That's kind of a crazy statement, isn't it? What could have been lacking in Christ's afflictions? Christ died a horrendous death on the cross. He was beaten. He had a crown of thorns. He was whipped with a cat of nine tails. He was mocked. He was spit upon. And he died an excruciating death on the cross. How can there be any limiting or lacking in that type of death? So it's important to understand what he means. He's not suggesting that there was anything lacking in Jesus' suffering as it had to do with appeasing the righteous wrath of God towards you and I. In other words, everything that Christ had to do, all the suffering that he had to do on the cross to be able to have your sins and my sins completely forgiven and eradicated and paid for by God was done on that cross. It, it, it was complete. That's why he was resurrected. The resurrection demonstrates that his sin, our sin, had been paid in full through Christ's suffering on the cross. But he's not talking about appeasing God's wrath towards us. He's speaking about got man's wrath towards Christ. See, on that cross, those men killed Jesus. Why? Because they hated him. And they beat him to a bloody pulp on that cross. But when he died for them, he died way too soon. If it was up to them and the evil of the wickedness of men, they would crucify Christ not once, but every day for all eternity. And still, their anger towards God would not be satisfied. There's only one problem. They killed him. He's no longer physically here. Where is he? He's seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and I. By the way, lots of news of Jesus coming and appearing and everything. Let me just say this to you. We need Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father, and we need him to stay there. Well, I'll preach on that another day, but we need him there, all right? And so he is there sit physically seated at the right hand of the Father. And what we find is, is, is this, is, is that they're still angry, but what do they do? They don't have the physical body of Christ. So what Paul says is, he says, we're the body of Christ. And he says, and because they could no longer pour their wrath out on him physically, now they're turning to his spiritual body, the church, and now they continue to persecute the church. And so he's giving us an idea. This is why persecution of the church has to happen. This is why it's promised by Christ. In fact, Peter tells us, he says, Beloved, in 1 Peter 4, 1, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. He's speaking in context of not only all the difficulties that they had, but the difficulties that they were uh, uh, viewing and experiencing because of the persecution. And he says, when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. He says, persecution, because of your witness towards Christ, is as common as, as, as air to the lungs. That's how common it is. It's a part. Don't go around sitting there going, I don't understand. I did some good things, and now why am I suffering for it? He goes, this is common. He goes, don't, don't look and be astounded. In fact, Peter fo uh, Paul follows up again in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and here's the other promise. Christ promised it. Peter promised it. Paul promises it. He says this. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a promise. 
If it's a promise of God, it's going to ultimately happen for all those who are set apart for his glory. I think it's interesting. Isn't it interesting that the modern false gospel that so many preach is a gospel that promises a complete absolving of suffering when the true gospel that we find in the word of God taught by Jesus and his apostles as one that promised added suffering. There's a false gospel that's sweeping, guys. Just turn on the television, listen to different things. And there's some great programs on, some great radio programs on, great men of God that that are teaching. But there is a lot of rubbish. And there's a lot of teaching that is this, this, this false gospel which says God wants to save you and to deliver you from all of your temporal problems, pains, aches, and take all those away. And that's why you need to be able to come to Jesus. And I'm telling you, that kind of gospel sells, but it also sends people to hell. I cannot... When you come to Mercy Hill, or if we're going to share the gospel with you, the one thing I'm not going to do is try to slip you the mickey. I'm not going to come to you and just sit there and go, hey, man, just come to you. You got, you, got, you got pain? God will take it away. You've got suffering? God will take that away. He'll take it. He'll wash it all away. You've got financial problems? He'll take it away. I can't promise you what the word of God doesn't promise you. I can say he will ultimately take all of that away. When you are glorified with him in heaven, all of that's going to go, go away. Amen? Fantastic. However, what I'm telling you is some of that suffering may even be gone. He may choose to take it away from you. That's what he does for his children. Sometimes he chooses to keep it. Uh, Some of the suffering that you and I have will go away because some of the suffering that we are experiencing is just the outcome of our own sinful actions, right? So when you submit yourself to Christ, some of that stuff goes away. Some of those, the outcome of that sin remains with us, however, does it not? And so sometimes it remains. So I can't promise you that all of your suffering and financial problems are ultimately going to go away But what I can promise you this is this. One day it will all go away in the person of Jesus Christ. You will have a right relationship with Christ. Your sins will be forgiven you here and now. And I can promise you that there is more suffering to come because you came to Jesus Christ. Suffering and persecution that you would have never experienced had you never come to him. And so I know at this particular point everyone's sitting there going, I thought this was supposed to be encouraging. Wait a minute, this is a promise. I'm just trying to know and try to make the point. This is a promise of God. If you are trying, young person, adult, professional, uh, educated, no, no education, whatever, if you live for Jesus, there will be persecution. And you say, is there any joy in that? Apparently there were for the, for the early believers. In Acts chapter 5, by the time that we get there, I don't know if I'll preach it yet or not. It gets a little repetitious as we go. But in Acts chapter 5, we see that, again, they're being persecuted. They're arrested. This time, they're not only threatened, they're beaten. And you know what the Bible says when they leave? They leave rejoicing that they have been found worthy of the dishonor for the name of Jesus Christ. Put the two together. Why are they rejoicing? Because I like a good beating in the morning. That's get up. I just like it. It just mm, it gets me moving in the morning. No, they're not some kind of spiritual masochist. They understand that because Jesus said every true believer in Jesus Christ will be persecuted, they understood that when they were persecuted for the name of Christ, they were truly children of God. That's the evidence that you are in the faith, that you are willing to suffer for Christ's name's sake. That's the encouragement. So you're like, well, that's not good enough. That's, the Bible suggests that's good enough. So the Bible teaches us that it's inevitable. Why? Because the word of God promises it. Number two, 
Number two, I can't find the point. I'll just look on the screen. The message of Christ provides it, provokes it. The message of Christ provokes it. Now, when the religious leaders came upon the disciples, uh, the Bible says in verse 2 that the religious leaders were greatly annoyed. Now, that word annoyed, it only shows up one other time in the New Testament, and it's in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, Jesus, Jesus in, or not Jesus, sorry, Paul and Silas are walking around, and there is this slave girl who has a demon, demon-possessed slave girl that won't stop following them. And they're walking around, and they, she just keeps speaking and speaking and speaking. And the Bible says that Peter was greatly annoyed with her. That would be annoying, right? And so this is the same sense of, of being annoying. Now, what do we do with this? Let me make sure that you understand. This is not evidence or biblical precedence for you to be annoying. Okay? You understand? I don't want to hear anybody leave here and somebody go, man, you're kind of being annoying. And you sit back and go, well, the apostles did it. I'm just trying to be like the apostles. I want to be as annoying as I possibly can and go annoy people. And let me just say this, and I think we can be open and honest with each other, right? We as Christians can be a little annoying. Would you, you guys look hurt by that or surprised. A little annoying. And I have a long list of annoyances that Christians do. I'm not going to give you all of them. Let me just give you one. One of my annoyances is unspoken prayer requests. It is so annoying. If you grew up in the 80s and the 90s, it was like all the rave. It was all the rave. Everybody had an unspoken prayer request. You gather together, let's pray for one another, and each person unspoken, 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 unspoken. Do you know how hard it is to pray for an unspoken prayer request? Do you have any idea how difficult that is? Uh, 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 they unspoken. We don't know what it is, but you know what it is. Let it happen, or don't let it happen, or maybe it should happen. If they have enough faith, let it happen. And you're, I mean, you're just trying to figure out, how do I pray for this thing? And if you're one... That this sits there and you're like, hey man, I, I, I'm the, I'm the, you know, um, silent prayer request kind of guy. Um, then I got to let you know when you sit there and say, I have an unspoken. Everybody in the room thinks the absolute worst about what it is that you're going through. <laughs> At that particular moment, literally, the men in the room reach and hold for the security of their wallets, and the women grab their children to secure them from you. Right. So I'm just letting you know. That, that, that let's do away. So there are annoying things that we do. I've just always wanted to share that, and this was the perfect <laughs> opportunity to be able to do it. And so there were these annoying things that, that something was annoying them, and the next day, the, the, the Bible says they were, it actually tells us why they were annoyed, and, it, and don't think that it was because they had healed a man. The Bible says actually specifically greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So two things. Number one, they were upset because they were teaching. During that day, it's a little bit different than our view of teachers today. I mean, I have a high view of teachers. Teachers let you know. Um, I am one. And so teaching is very important. But in that day, I mean, you really could not have climbed the ladder any higher than be a teacher of men. And so this was, but in order to be able to do it, you had to go through all the rabbinical schools and all the teachings, and you had to have your bachelor's and master's and your doctorate. You had to have all these things in order to be able to achieve this. And now here are these apostles going out teaching people, and they're angry because they have no right. They don't have the credentials to be able to do it. And so they're angry because they're teaching, but they're also annoyed and they're angry because of the content of what they're preaching, of what they're teaching. What are they teaching about? They're teaching about, namely, the person of Jesus Christ. Remember, this was the same group of people who had just killed Jesus. 
They hated him. They were jealous of Jesus Christ. They had, tried, they had attempted to get rid of him on several different occasions, but they couldn't. Finally, they succeeded. Now they just want to sit back, kick back, and go, no more Jesus, but they can't because the moment that they do, these guys are coming up speaking about Jesus, healing people in the name of Jesus. It wasn't just Jesus that provoked them and made them annoyed. It was also because when they were preaching, they were talking about the resurrection. And in this group, we talk about the Sadducees. And the Sadducees didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in the raising of the dead. They didn't believe in angels and demons. They were the, the, the liberal theologians of the day. See, that's why they were sad, you see. So, you, so you get that. And so, see, that's another one that I was working on for so long. I just needed a place, and I got it. And so, so, so they didn't believe in any of these things, and now they're coming, they're preaching Christ, and they're also preaching about the resurrection, most likely the end, ultimate resurrection, and also the temporal resurrection of Jesus Christ coming back to life. And so all of this angers them beyond anything. Isn't it interesting to you and to me, do you find it interesting like I do, that merely mentioning the name of Jesus and the, mess, the message of Jesus Christ causes so much diverse emotion among people. You can name the name of Jesus, and for a believer in Christ, they, they all, they're filled with love and joy and peace. It's kind of like a, a millennial in, in, in their essential oils, right? That's the same response. They have love, joy, peace. And so, so when you hear Jesus, I know, I know with my wife, um, she sings at home. She's not going to sing out loud for all of you. We, we have forbidden all of our family ever to sing in public. But my wife, I love my wife, but anyway, so, we're, so she will sing. She will sing to our kids before they go to bed. Oh, she's in here. Okay, so you guys tell on me every week anyway, so I can't really get rid of much. But then we're sitting there, and she, she has made a habit of singing to our kids before they go to bed. And one of the songs that she always sings is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You know, you know that song? There's just something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus. You, you know the song. I'm not going to sing it for you, right? So you know the song. And, and she will sing it. Why does she sing it? Because she wants to annoy the heck out of her kids before they go to bed and get them riled up and get their hearts mad. You just said, no, no. She sang it because there's no more name that is more comforting and loving and secure than the name of Jesus. The last thing she wants to hear the kids sing is the name of Jesus. So she sings that to you. But that's the response of those who are born again. But for those who are perishing, the the name of Jesus stirs something completely differently up there. Yeah, there's something about that name, but it's not anything good. If you're a college student, you know, and going to a secular university, a great experiment would be able to go in, and on the very first week, right before the professor takes, stand up and goes, hey, guys, I just want to introduce myself. My name is Mike, and I follow Muhammad. Just want to let you know, right? Then next week, come in and say, hey, listen, I've been illuminated, and I'm no longer following Muhammad, but now I'm following Buddha. Just want to kind of let you know. Third week, come in, same thing. Say, hey, listen, I want to let you know I've been enlightened even more. Now I'm following Krishna. Fourth week, come in and let everybody know that you have been born again by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and that you are now a follower of Jesus Christ. And what I want you to take note of is which gets the greatest negative reaction. And the greatest negative reaction always comes with associating yourself with the person of Jesus Christ. It is the strangest thing. And I've been trying to figure out why is that? 
and I've tried to kind of write this out. I said, I said, you know, to see, I think the reason is because the message of Jesus and remembrance of Jesus, you can't think of him without thinking of his message, without thinking about his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so when we hear about that, it illuminates our sin and it strikes at our pride. See, we, we can't see him as wonderful unless, uh, 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 wonderful, oh, excuse me, to see him as wonderful, we have to see ourselves as not wonderful. We have to see ourselves as sinners who have rebelled against God, our creator, and are, and are worthy of his death and destruction. The message of Jesus tells us that we are not good enough to be accepted by him. That actually the very best of us is deserving of God's judgment and deserving of hell. He says it's not good enough, nor can we be good enough by our own efforts to now to merit God's favor and his love for us. So when some hear this message, it rains, blows down on their pride. It not only convicts them of their sin, but it also strikes them in their prideful position. Because in order to be saved, what do you have to do? You have to identify that you're a sinner and humble yourself before God and receive him by faith. And so that's why it's such an obnoxious, annoying message. And the name of Jesus is so annoying. But we would sit there and say, but doesn't the name of Jesus also remind believers of those same things, of sin and as well of pride? And I would answer that, yes. But the sin that we are reminded of is not a sin that remains, but a sin that has been forgiven and cast as far as the east is from the west. It is a sin that has been paid for in full, which means there is therefore no condemnation for us who are now in Christ Jesus. And the reason we don't have as much, as much of a difficulty by humbling ourselves before God because we've learned that the place of grace and receiving grace and mercy is a place of humbling ourselves before him so we continue to humble ourselves before him to receive his continued grace and his continued mercy. So understand this. When you speak Christ, it's, it's the message that's so offensive. If you begin to tell somebody about Christ, everything is going to change at that particular point. You've had conversations with, with people about that before. So if you're speaking at Christ, they're going to persecute you because you're aligned with Christ. And so I, I, love, this, I love this quote by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. He says, For we are the aroma, that we're the smell of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. In essence, he says, you smell like something to save people when you're, when you're proclaiming the name of Jesus, and you smell like something to lost people when you're proclaiming Jesus. He goes on, he says, To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance of life to life. To those who are perishing, you sound like death. The message of Jesus is death. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, it's a fragrance of life. It's a beauty. And so when you identify with Christ, speak Christ and speak that message, there are going to be times, and we're going to get to this in a minute, you have to do it. But in sometimes for those who reject, it is not a good smell or aroma to them. It is a reminder of death. There's a third reason why persecution is, oh, we're going a little bit over, but last week we finished 10 minutes early. <laughs> now I'm taking that 10 minutes and I'm putting over to this, okay? All right? So just, man, I don't want to rob anybody. Um, I only work one day a week, so allow me my moment. Um, so anyway, so the, the idea here is the disciples, the th- third reason why it's inevitable is because the disciples of Christ can't help it. It's not just because the word of God promised it. And it's not just because the, the message of Christ provokes it. 
but it's also because the disciples of Christ can't help it. They can't help but to be persecuted. Now, what we have is they get arrested, they come to the next day, and now they're going to be in front of this really, really rough crowd, all right? Kind of like the one I'm preaching to you at this particular moment. And so, so they're there, and, 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 and it's made up of all different types of people. Verse 5, uh, there were the rulers who were the chief priests. There were the elders who were the tribe. Uh, they were the tribe and the family leaders. There were scribes, which consisted of 71 members of the Sanhedrin, which during that day was the Supreme Court. There was nobody who had more authority than them except for the Roman government themselves. And then he mentions a couple of people, Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander. Now, we don't know who John and Alexander are, but we do know from Matthew's account of the Gospels in Jesus' trial that both Annas and Caiaphas were instrumental in Jesus' trial and in his ultimate death. So stop and think about this. As they're remembering Jesus' words that you too will be persecuted, if they persecuted me, they shall likewise persecute you, it doesn't get any more real than this. This is literally a fulfillment of that being prophecy because they're standing before the same, hand, same Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin. It says they were in their midst. Literally, the Sanhedrin sat in a huge half circle with 71 men, and they were literally sitting, standing amongst them, being judged by them at this particular point. The same men that put Christ to death. Now, if you were in jail the night before realizing that you were going to face these same men, what would you begin to think? You begin to think this is going to be not good. If they kill Jesus, they're certainly going to beat and kill us as well. So the next day, they come and they stand before them, and they're asked this question, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now, they already know that it's the name of Jesus. They just want to hear him again because they want to be able to hear it with their own ears. They have the evidence so that they can possibly put him to death. I don't know what it is that they're thinking, but they want to be able to hear this. Now, if I was Paul, if I was there, Peter's, if I was their lawyer the night before, Here's what I would have told them. The same advice that my dad used to always give me. Son, you stay out of a lot of trouble if you just learn to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> now, that's great advice. Now, I rarely ever take it, but it is really great advice. And I would have told them, I said, look, man, you don't have to lie or anything. Just be a little bit more opaque, a little bit more obtuse in what you're saying. In other words, don't use the name Jesus. Use, just talk about God a little bit. Don't bring up the resurrection. You know that gets them all kind of antsy and angry. Just, just be politically correct when you go in. And so what we find is, okay, that might be some advice, worldly advice, but they couldn't do it. They couldn't help themselves but to preach about Jesus. Here's three reasons why, and we're going to close with this. First of all, they couldn't do it because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 8. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to this crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you. I love this. To all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the very cornerstone. Does it sound like they're backing up at all? No, they're doubling down, right? Okay, so Jesus makes you angry. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one who you crucified. 
He raised from the dead. And by the way, he's getting to their guild. He says he was the very cornerstone. Don't think that as a cornerstone of a building in which everything kind of rests. That's kind of our picture of a cornerstone. It's instead what we would call a capstone. A capstone is what goes, think of an arch and that center final piece of rock and stone that comes together, that sets everything in place and gives it strength. He says that's what it was, and you rejected that. He says, all of your laws, all of your ceremonial uh, uh, eatings, and all of your dress, and all of your holidays, all pointed to the one Jesus. You were putting all this stuff together, and you completely missed the whole point. Jesus was the point. So he comes. Now, why does he do that? Why does he show? Because they're filled with the Holy Spirit. We've said this before. I'm not going to labor on this. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it is not primarily demonstrated because of some kind of supernatural giftedness that you might have. All right? Do you remember the, the, the power team? Anybody remember the power team? All right? You, you guys blowing up, you know, water bottles. <laughs> really difficult, by the way. I can't do it. But blow up water bottles, taking big 500-pound logs and put them ab- uh, above their heads, right? And they would sit there and say, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And they would lift a 500-pound log, and we would all praise God for the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not the power of the Holy Spirit. The evidence of the Holy Spirit is when you and I, when our hearts are filled with Christ, and Christ is on our hearts, we can't help but to speak the person of Christ. That's being filled with the Spirit. They couldn't help themselves. And that's what I mean. The second thing is not only with the Holy Spirit, but second, they understood what was at stake. Look at verse 12. For there is salvation in no one else, for there is no one other, other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You got that, right? You can't help but to speak it if it's the only answer to life. I, I remember when I first came to, at then Celebration Mercy Hill. Can I stop doing that? All right. By the way, it's very annoying. When we first came to this church, Mercy Hill, um, I, we, had, we had a great deal of men. Most of the giftedness in our church, uh, not spiritual gifts, but abilities, were men that could build just about anything. I mean, they could sling hammers, they could saw, they could make things. So we wanted to get them to work in our community, still do, but wanted to get them to work in our community. And so they began to work and help poor people and build ramps and, and, and change out faucets and sinks and things like this. And so we began to do that, and, and all of a sudden people began to take notice, and other organizations within the community were like, man, we want to team up with you. We want to be a part of what you're doing. And so me, Pastor Mike, got invited to a very affluent lunch. That doesn't surprise you. It surprised me. And so, so uh, all very important people and people that I even know to this day, and we all kind of sat down and they said, listen, we're all excited. Tell us about what you're doing. And we're really excited about maybe you can help lead us and direct us in this. And I said, well, guys, I'm just going to tell you, you know, God has called us. We, we have poor people among us. What we've done to the least of these, my brethren, you were doing unto me. We want to help them. We want to encourage them. Yeah, that's right. And we want to do it for God. And we do it because God has been so good to us. Yes, that's right. And, and we want to do it because we want to give God glory because he's worthy of all glory and it's not right for us to be able to keep all these things to ourselves. God's given it not to us to hoard it but to be able to give it freely for the betterment of other people and they're like yes 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 and I said and most of all I love it because it gives us an opportunity to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ it was dead in that room it was like a Florida fan hearing that Jim McElwain is coming back to coach that's I mean it was literally just disturbing and in silence and i said and they said well wait a minute we we don't do that that's not what we do even though we believe in god we're not going to do that and i said then i can't be a part of this 
They said, well, why? Why can't you just do good works? And then, you know, just hope that God was, I said, because there is therefore no name under heaven whereby we must be saved. What good does it do if we help somebody fix their sink and get a cold glass of water if they spend an eternity in hell begging for a drop of water? doesn't do any good. That's not the end into itself. It's a means to an end so that we would propagate the gospel. We know what is at stake. It's why we have to do it. We can't help but to do it. And then the third thing is they knew that it was a matter of obedience. After hearing Peter and John's response, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to do because these men clearly seemed educated even though they had no official education. They couldn't do anything because the man was standing there. People had seen this miracle take place. They send him out. They don't know what to do. And finally, they bring him in. The only thing they can think of is to warn them and threaten them not to do this ever again. And then before they leave, verse 18, he says, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Very, very, very quickly. I'm going to ask Nick to come, if Nick's around. And Nick to come with this story, a story in 2 Kings chapter 7 and verse 9. There in, 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 in 2 Kings 7 9, there's a story about Israel and them being surrounded by the Assyrians. The whole, the whole city is surrounded by the Assyrians, and they're dying, and they're starving to death. They've got no way of food, and there's two lepers among them. And because nobody's throwing out their trash, there's no trash for them to eat. And so they sit to themselves and say, hey, listen, if we stay here, we're going to die. There's famine in the, in, in, in the city. There's famine outside of the city. It says, so what should we do? He goes, let's go over to the Assyrians. They're our, they're our enemies. They, they may kill us, but if they kill us, they'll take us out of our own suffering. He says, but they may give us, have mercy on us and give us some food. Well, as they're making their way over, God sends an angel and begins to create the sound of a mighty army. Go, go back and read. It's an awesome story. And all the Assyrians flee without taking their food, their money, their camels, their, their, their donkeys, their, 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 uh, their tents. Everything is just left there. And here come, you know, the two lepers. And they say, hey, guys, what's going on? Where you at? Right? And there's all this food everywhere. And they begin to eat it. And they begin to gorge on it. And as they're eating, all of a sudden, they, something comes to them. Conviction comes over them. And they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will come, overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. There's a whole group of people in that city that needed to be able to hear the good news that God had provided something supernaturally to be able to give them life. And the reason that we cannot remain silent is not only because we are filled with the Spirit and only because we know what is at stake, but because it would not be right or just for us. I have a greater fear of God than we do of man. And the Bible tells us to fear God who can condemn the soul, not man who can condemn and to kill the body, right? And so because of that, we cannot help all of our fears. Listen to me. All the fears you have, all the fears of being made fun of, all the fears of loss, all the fears of all of those things, we can't help but to be able to speak the name of Jesus. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. To overcome all of those fears, to do what we know is ultimately right. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, seeking to live a Christ-centered life, you cannot help but to be persecuted because you cannot help but to share the good news of Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you today. We thank you. I thank you for the patience of our people. God, I thank you for the power of your word. Lord Jesus, I just pray now that you would move. Would you save some even right here? Would there be some who, for the first time, the gospel's coming alive?
They've heard it, they've heard it, they've heard it, they've heard it. And they sat there and go, man, but there's something different about today. The truth is, I've seen other people live out this Christian life. I'm not living out this Christian life. This isn't my relationship with Christ. God, I've never repented. I've never turned from my sin. I've never believed in you. Lord, let that be today. Let that be today. And for the rest, let us sit back and sit there and go, God, help me be more bold than ever before. Help me to be more bold to share the gospel, not afraid of man, but in fear of a holy God. And let us take that with us as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? Would you stand? I'm going to be down here. If you want to know more about Christ, if you want to pray, altar's open. If you want to pray with me, I'd love to pray with you. Let's just take a moment to pray. Would you pray during this time? Think on God. Respond to the preaching of God's word. All right? Okay, brother.